Psychedelic science is exploding, and we talk to people at the forefront. So cut through the noise, converse with the vanguard. This is Mind Manifest. Hi there, and welcome to the Mind Manifest podcast. I'm your host, Niall Campbell, and I hope this finds you well. Today, I spoke with Martin Williams, a postdoctoral fellow in medicinal chemistry at Monash University in Melbourne. Martin's background lends him to the pharmacological dimension of working with psychedelics. He holds honours degrees in chemistry and biochemistry from the University of Sydney, and his PhD is in medicinal chemistry and pharmaceutical sciences. In terms of advocacy, he is founding vice president of Entheogenesis Australia, and he is also affiliated with Harm Reduction Victoria as a peer educator at events and festivals. He is also founding president of Psychedelic Research in Science and Medicine, which is more commonly known by the acronym PRISM. It was this last role I wanted to talk to him in because PRISM has just embarked on a very exciting chapter. In partnership with St Vincent Hospital in Melbourne, PRISM will be conducting the first ever Australian medical trial using psilocybin to ease anxiety and depression for terminally ill patients. They are being supported in this endeavour by Mind Medicine Australia and the Vasudhara Foundation. And Martin is the scientific officer at Mind Medicine Australia. And just by way of a brief background, Mind Medicine Australia is a new DGR registered charity that is focused specifically on the clinical application of medicinal psilocybin and medicinal MDMA for certain mental illnesses. They don't advocate for recreational use of psychedelics, nor do they advocate for any changes to the law with respect to recreational use. Their focus is wholly clinical. And so myself and Martin decided to try and focus our conversation on the upcoming trial and the cultural conversation around it. So I began by asking Martin to just give us a bit of background to the upcoming study. So the, uh, the clinical trial is a phase two clinical trial. It's been, it's been carried out at uh, St Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne uh, and it is uh, using psychedelic psychotherapy to treat uh, people who have terminal illness, in some cases people with cancer, but in other cases people who have non-cancer terminal illness. Uh, and so we're actually extending some of the, um, the completed trials that have uh, taken place in the US in particular. Uh, and we're extending that to non-cancer prognosis as well as uh, looking at some of the delivery options for music. There are various aspects that we're, uh, that we're hoping to enhance in the trial. And in terms of the, uh, the sort of study design on the expected uh, length of the study? So we'll be treating 30 participants uh, and 15 of those people will receive uh, active psilocybin, which is uh, synthesised psilocybin. Uh, and then the other half will be receiving an active placebo called nicotinic acid or niacin. Uh, niacin gives a sort of a physiological response. So people sort of feel a sort of a prickling on their skin. They feel rather hot and they definitely have the sense that something's happening, but it certainly doesn't translate into any uh, psychedelic effect. So it's a, it's a sort of a reasonable placebo uh, in these um, in these trials, given that it's really very difficult to achieve a complete double blind in, in psychedelic psychotherapy clinical trials. Uh, so 30 participants. Um, at the end of the trial, which will probably take two to two and a half years to complete, uh, in fact, all of the participants will have received 
psilocybin. Uh, and so basically 15 and 15 in the first instance, and then those people who received placebo in the first round of the trial then will be offered uh, psilocybin on the second stage. I suppose there's a few terms that we have talked offline about how and we'll come on to this about journalistic integrity, but there's maybe two terms that I think would be good to unpack uh, in terms of what, what blinding is in studies more generally and, and, and the problems which have been uh, elicited in doing it within psychedelic research and also uh, how, how studies work in terms of consent for different phases and, and maybe if you could talk a little bit about crossover and the different the different ways in which those, those two terms would apply in this particular study? Uh, so I, I guess we can go back to sort of the first wave of psychedelic clinical research, which took place in the uh, 1950s and early 60s. Uh, and uh, it's basically estimate, estimated that up to 4,000 participants were um, were given uh, psychedelics at various times and up to 40,000 sessions overall. Uh, and so the... Uh, uh, the problem that we see nowadays um, with those trials is that they were not well controlled, uh, which meant that there was uh, a, a lack of, I guess, research um, robustness. Um, and so part of the problem there is that if you have what's called open-label trials, then the expectation of the participant may actually um, outweigh the, uh, the actual benefit of the therapy itself. Uh, and so that's where, uh, following the 60s really into the 70s and 80s, then um, a placebo-controlled, randomised controlled trial became the gold standard for um, particularly pharmaceutical and mental health uh, research. Uh, and so um, we're hoping to apply or we intend to apply that gold standard. Um, but as I said, this, this concern about achieving a blind um, condition is, is problematic in psychedelic research just because of the intensity of the of the. Um, of the mind-altering effects of psychedelics in general. Crossover in trials means that basically if you have a placebo arm and a, an active uh, drug arm, uh, in the first round of uh, administration, then normally half the, uh, about half of the total cohort would receive placebo, about half would receive the active. And then at some point, um, at at a usually a, say a six to eight to twelve week period, an appropriate period of time after the initial treatment, uh, then a series of um, psychological measures or measurements are taken, uh, and then according to the crossover design, then those people who receive the placebo in the first round would then uh, would then receive the active, and those people who receive the active would then receive placebo. Uh, that unfortunately does introduce some sort of statistical complications and it actually tends to weaken the, um, the strength of the trial overall. Uh, and so we've elected, um, after some considerable um, thought, to, uh, to go with a straight a randomised controlled trial, which would be um, psilocybin or placebo for half each of the 30 participants. Uh, and then, in fact, we... Um, we then offer everybody a, a dose of psilocybin. So those people in the first arm who received psilocybin will actually be offered a second 
dose uh, and then those who receive placebo will receive a first dose uh, and so in fact that gives us some 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 pretty robust measures I think at the end of it because then we'll actually be able to see if there's a effectively a, um, a repeated um, a repeated treatments uh, measure as well which will be very interesting to, to look at. I think that's an interesting point about um, the the first wave of, of sort of Western clinical research, um, because I have sort of seen from the this sort of media shtick at the minute that it was there's a sort of bent on a lot of the reporting that it was there was so much positive research and it was you know really get gathering momentum and then you know in inverted commas the man came in and shut it down. But I think this, the story is a bit more nuanced than that. In that, it, as you say, there wasn't it wasn't characterised by a deep rigour to the work that no. was done. I'm thinking of the blinding attempts at the Greed Friday. Yeah. <laughs> there wasn't much blinding going on. So, um, so yeah, I'm just wondering what you, your thoughts are with regards to how that that I see that problem with blinding as being something that will be a bit of a sticking point going forward and I'm wondering are there any has there been any progressions with the research community and and how you physiologically go about that? Well I I think that's they're all very valid points I uh, I've actually been rereading Michael Pollan's book How to Change Your Mind and I would commend that to anybody who hasn't read it already Uh, and in fact I've just finished the the middle section of the book which is the history of psychedelic research in the in the uh, the 50s and 60s and also how the whole thing really came unstuck after uh, well people tend to blame Dr Timothy Leary for his sort of uh, for his antics, as they call them, but it's also thought that even if he hadn't been around, then it's it's quite possible that uh, that the counterculture would have embraced psychedelics anyway, and that many of these sort of social changes, and then that the government response ultimately would have taken place anyway. But all that said, uh, it's actually considered that the Good Friday experiment, which was the Marsh Chapel experiment in uh, in 1962, uh, was uh, was was controlled to the best extent that they could at the placebo control to the to the greatest extent that they could at the time and I think that really underlined for many people just how difficult it is to blind uh, psychedelic studies uh, but nonetheless they gave it a crack uh, and um, and so to to as great a degree as, as was possible at the time I think they achieved uh, useful useful results anyway um, and really, the uh, I think that the proof of the pudding at the end of it was that uh, that um, a number of the a significant majority of the people who were in the active uh, psilocybin arm of that uh, treatment um, basically retained the the, the benefits uh, through their lives, and they still many of them considered that that ex- that particular experience was one of the most significant of their lives. Whereas uh, obviously those people who <laughs> who uh, received the placebo um, probably forgot about it or regarded it as something of a, of a, of a negative experience overall. Yeah, that's um, I I totally agree with um, in terms of a uh, a, a good primer for um, for the current Renaissance and its context. I would highly recommend Michael Pollan's book. I've been actually rereading it myself. Um, I think uh, it's really and and this will hopefully have a bit more of a slant towards an Australian audience. So I think it really for for people that are listening, if they're if maybe their parents are of the baby boomer generation um, are interested, I, I've given this book to my dad and he's, he's reading it. It's, it's, it, I, I like, I like his section on, I think he's a particularly good 
historian yes. of it because he, he deals with, say, Leary with um, a bit more circumspection than I've seen in, in other quarters, evangelizing or uh, demonizing. He's sort of a bit of a, somebody as complex as Timothy Leary is never going to be all good or all bad. He sort of is a bit of a combination of both. Absolutely. And I think really Michael Pollan comes across as a very, uh, a very mature and, and considered uh, writer who, who respects his subject, um, does really uh, wonderful background research and, as you say, is an excellent his, uh, historian who tells a, a, a balanced um, story without the, without the sort of evangelical zeal which can often um, beset uh, these sort of treatments of these sort of subjects. We were talking about... Um the 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 issue with uh, over exuberance or uh, irrational ignorance and um, how that might play out in the media Australia has entered this um, this game of, of new wave of research uh, I wouldn't say late in the day but it's still fairly nascent but how are you feeling about the media response to this what which is really the first study of its kind in in Australia? One thing I can say is that the media response has been overwhelmingly positive and so we're really gratified for that. There's no question that uh, um, that there's been a, a lot of enthusiasm and, and support for, for what we're doing. Uh, I agree with you that, that we're a little late to come to the party but I think we, we really have the opportunity to, to catch up uh, and build on the research that's been taking place in other parts of the world for uh, in some cases, the best part of 20 years now. So, uh, But uh, having said that the media has been very positive, it's also been a little, sometimes a little over-enthusiastic. And I think another thing, of course, is that uh, the Australian community uh, is sort of somewhat psychedelic naive overall. Uh, I don't think... Um, I don't think psychedelics really struck the um, the Australian community in the 60s the way that it did in, uh, in say, the UK and the US, of, of course, in particular. Um, and so there's less of that sort of collective consciousness that can be tapped into um, when uh, we bring up the subject of psychedelic medical research nowadays. Uh, and so there tends to be a bit of a tendency, I guess, to, to either dumb things down, simplify concepts, or maybe sometimes trivialise them. And I guess a good case in point would be the use of the term magic mushrooms, um, even uh, even if it's qualified by the use of the word psilocybin or synthetic psilocybin um, to uh, to refer to the drug that we're using in our current uh, upcoming um, clinical trial. So uh, it has to be stressed that the psilocybin that will be used for a number of reasons uh, is synthetic psilocybin. It's produced um, according to a practice called Good Manufacturing Practice, GMP, and that's really absolutely critical for, uh, for clinical trials of any pharmaceutical compound in, uh, in human subjects. Uh, for reasons of safety and efficacy and, and reproducibility. Uh, so we, um, as a community, I think, have some maturing to do in terms of using the, the correct terminology. Uh, and although it's, it, although it's you know, nice and it's quite fun to talk about magic mushrooms, uh, and in fact magic, that concept of magic mushrooms may strike a chord in a lot of people, um, it's really important to... Um, to emphasise that this is a clinical trial using a pharmaceutical compound for uh, for a mental health condition. Uh, let's say a journalist said, "That's all well and good, Martin, but you know my readership, they don't they'll 
they'll switch off if they see some technical term. How would you suggest that they bridge the gap between, because I agree, I think we're sort of past the training wheel phase. People understand the research is not new, uh, even in this wave. How would you suggest, mm. how would you like to see it being reported for a mm. lay audience, for a psychedelically naive audience? I've actually gone through that process exactly this afternoon because we're just um, about to have a a conversation um, article uh, posted online this afternoon Uh, and uh, the the headline started out exactly along those lines, magic mushrooms for mental health conditions, you know, is that that, uh, going to fly in Australia? And I I said with all respect, you know, perhaps we could, maybe we could just use the word psychedelics for mental health conditions and they were very happy to to do that. Um, So... Um, yes, I think we are always sort of uh, probably fighting the urge to, to have a catchy um, headline uh, to grab people's attention. Almost inevitably there'll be a photo of mushrooms, quite often not psilocybin <laughs> mushrooms. Um, and so I think we need to educate our, um, our media as well as our audience to, to ensure that they're really getting the, getting the message and they're passing the, the right message um, across. Um, and I think... I think that's doubly important for us because uh, what we're aiming to do is is really demonstrate the um, the practical utility of some of these drugs uh, in the medical context, and so that means to me that those drugs should be afforded a, a degree of respect, and the and the research process itself should be respected. Um, and it, it might sound a bit might sound a bit staid or or a bit dry, but um, but at the end of the day, our uh, our objective is to have these drugs approved um, because uh, the, uh, the trials so far have demonstrated benefits. Uh, if for any reason the follow-up phase three trials globally don't, um, don't uh, give the same, yield the same positive results that the, the phase twos appear to have, uh, then we'll have to go back to the drawing board. There's no question about that. Of course, that's the, that's the whole reason for doing these um, clinical trials. But if the results end up being positive, then that will mean that we there, there is a, a, a framework, a structure of legalisation in place, which is well beyond decriminalisation. So this is legalisation and scheduling for medical use. Uh, and then, of course, the decriminalisation debate is, is something quite separate from this. Uh, of course, we, we don't have time or, uh, or it's, it's beyond the scope of this particular conversation to go into that, of course. Uh, but nonetheless, I think if we if, if we just keep a fairly measured tone, we avoid that sort of evangelical um, uh, enthusiasm, which in some cases has put uh, sceptics uh, well and truly offside, uh, then we stand a better chance to um, uh, to see the, the, uh, the regulatory framework um, accommodate what we are hoping to achieve in the spirit of doing that to just speak about the actual we'll we'll get into the um potential sticking points of skeptics but the actual compound itself uh what what has impressed you with your and maybe you could uh, give a bit of a context to your educational and, and professional background what in your professional opinion, has really impressed you about working with these compounds, or why why have you why are you so enthused by by using this in, in a therapeutic context? One thing I think it needs to be um, emphasised is that these these drugs are used as um, adjuncts to psychotherapy, so they're they're really facilitating the psychotherapeutic outcomes. Um, 
And so it's not necessarily the drugs themselves that are doing the work. It's usually um, a person's innate capacity to, to heal uh, their own mental health conditions. And that in many cases, particularly in, in affective or mood disorders, uh, can be a shift in perspective. It can also um, come about through some shifts in, in neurochemistry, of course, uh, so brain chemistry. Um, but effectively, um, what we're seeing is some, in, in the trials completed to date, are some quite profound changes in people's uh, mental health, uh, resulting from only one, two, or maybe at the outside three administrations of the of the compound in question. And so that's in uh, really stark contrast with uh, more standard pharmacotherapeutic models of administering, for example, uh, um, an antidepressant medication or an anxiolytic such as a benzodiazepine for, uh, for anxiety, uh, say, once or twice a day, in some cases for the rest of somebody's life. If not that, then at least for for, uh, years or even decades. And so um, what we feel uh, the promise of these is, is that um, um, with a very very limited brief intervention, people can can achieve lasting uh, beneficial outcomes. And that's what really excites me about this. Um, So really the... uh, as I said, the the drug is probably more a, a mediator of the therapeutic process rather than causing uh, um, the requirement for ongoing um, neurochemi- neurochemical modulation. Sorry to get a bit complicated there. Um, no, please do. But, but what we're possibly seeing is actually some regrowth, for example, of neuronal connections. We're seeing some changes in... Um, in, in uh, the patterns of neural connections, which um, can bring about these significant mood changes with time. This mediation function has obviously been studied uh, in, in this, this demographic, uh, this sort of population of patients, and in, in most notably in Johns Hopkins. So for people that are uh, familiar with that study, or, or maybe if as well for those who aren't, what... Could you just unpack for from a, maybe a like a client's perspective, a, a participant's perspective, what will this study actually look like from a palliative patient's perspective? Sure. Yep. So I guess we can go back to the, the, the real primary concepts of set and setting. So set means the mindset or the, 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 the state of mind of the participant, and then the setting is the environment in which the therapy takes place. Uh, and so it's important to, um, to achieve receptive mindset and to achieve a supportive uh, setting or an environment. And so on that basis, a participant would, after after screening to come onto the trial, and it has to be has to be pointed out that there are uh, inclusion and exclusion criteria for um, for inclusion on the trial, uh, as there would be in any clinical trial, effectively. Uh, but then, somebody who's been accepted onto the trial um, would be given a, a, a two or three uh, sessions of psychotherapy without any drug at all in order to prepare them for the experience. And basically that means that somebody should be uh, given an impression of what they might experience or how they might feel so that they don't um, uh, so that they don't have any experiences which they're not really well prepared for. It's important not in our opinion not to 
um, not to spill over into um, giving people expectations, particularly things like, for example, spiritual or mystical concepts. So we feel that it's important for people um, to have a, a reasonably neutral uh, set of expectations, but they should be prepared for what is what commonly manifest as anxiety or fear or uh, in some in some cases people might experience memories which are quite distressing um, and so it's a matter of making sure that they're um, they're prepared for those and able to deal with them as they come up and they will be reassured that they would always have therapists beside them during the actual drug assisted therapy sessions to um, to help them uh, negotiate or deal with any significant you know sort of negative um, emotions which might arise and then after that preparation has taken place then on the on the day of uh, the actual treatment then they would be um, welcomed into a, a very comfortable uh, room so it will still be a, a clinical room in the hospital uh, but it will be a room that has uh, a uh, a sofa bed or a couch for the participant to lie on. Uh, there'll be some art on the walls, fairly non-suggestive um, suggest, art. Denominational. Yeah, certainly non-denominational because um, although it has been found that uh, that um, a spiritual or mystical component of the experience seems to correlate quite strongly with beneficial outcomes, uh, of course that is a, a, a non-denominational and non uh, non-sort of church-based, I guess you could say, really, non-strict non religion-based um, uh, set of images. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the participant will be given a set of um, good uh, headphones for music and usually a set of eye shades. And so that basically uh, encourages the participant to go um, to go internal and to, to really uh, be looking at their own sort of um, mind processes without uh, very much in the way of external um, influence or intervention, except to say that it seems that um, the the quality and style of music are actually quite important for for therapeutic outcomes. The music is, I would say, of paramount importance. It's really something that um, is is phenomenally impactful on on the session. I, I don't know what your thoughts are in terms of its relative importance. Very much so, um, but it, it's uh, it's a tricky one to negotiate, and we're we're really putting quite a lot of thought into that because uh, one of the papers that came out of the uh, Imperial College London studies was that uh, uh, in some cases the participants were not very comfortable with the selection of music at, at all times throughout their um, experience. And it has to be said that a, a psilocybin experience normally um, will last for about five six maybe seven hours uh, and so um, it has a it has a fairly well-defined trajectory so there's a period of um, coming up or intoxication and then there's a period during the peak and then things gradually tail off again and and people come back into their own sort of more normal sort of thought patterns uh, and so as you might imagine it can be very difficult to match um, the pace and the, the general sort of sense of, of um, a, a musical narrative to what's actually going on uh, at every stage of the of the psychedelic experience and so we're actually we're, we're trying to find ways to get around that perhaps by offering um, different selections of music so people can choose among them um, better to suit their state of mind at any particular time during that six, six to eight hour session uh, so we're, we're looking at um, technical um, options to uh, to achieve that flexibility 
but certainly the, the the music the music is is important and and uh, so people for many many years have uh, have really reiterated just how how profound an influence music can have over the quality of a of a psychedelic experience. Yeah, um, the I, as you're saying that I'm 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 almost imagining some sort of troubleshooting because I've been looking quite closely at the, at the music um, and I've been in contact with uh, hopefully I'll have him on the podcast Mental Kalen the the chap who who curated the yeah and I'll actually as a as a footnote for myself here I'm going to link. Uh, in the sort of embedded blog post he has a, a longer form talk on the rationale behind the music and it's not it's uh, it's quite um i i thought it, i found it quite explanatory i suppose it comes back on it, it it will fold into most likely with the the statistically significant findings that better treatment outcomes correlate quite strongly with the occasioning of mystical experiences and the music is i think uh, very, uh, you know, in, involved in that. How are you planning on on reducing the expectancy bias for that? Because I think that the Hopkins studies weren't weren't as blended as they as they could have been for that. There was, I think, there was a certain amount of, you know, people filled out the noetic sense form straight after, you know, round about the time of the session. So how are you going to hold that space? So that if people have mystical experiences, you're not thinking, did we elicit, did we sort of, you know, nudge them towards that? It is a difficult question. Uh, I think, um, I think really it, it comes down to the uh, the abilities, the skills of the therapists, and their ability to remain, what would you say, equanimous or you know, supportive, but not but not leading, not guiding. So it really is a matter of sitting and not guiding. Um, having said that, actually, one of our one of our therapists on the team is a very, very experienced music therapist, so she has great credentials in all of this, and so I think she should bring uh, she should be bringing a great deal of value to bear in that regard. Um, but um, one thing I think uh, in our favour is that Australian society generally is somewhat more prosaic, I guess you can say, in a way than maybe the um, the American cohort. So. Uh, Given that uh, suggestibility is considered to be a very common sort of aspect of, of psychedelic experience, um, people in with a with a more sort of religious or spiritual background may be more susceptible to being led um, by music or by okay. even subliminally, I guess, by by therapists. But um, but I think in our case in Australia, we we might be just a little more resilient to to that. Um, but I, I can't really be absolutely sure. I'm not, a, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question adequately, but uh, that, that's my sort of sense anyway. I think you are, and I think you're answering it very diplomatically. I like the use of the word Australians are more prosaic than <laughs> Americans. I, I, I think I should also circle back and say I don't mean to be in any way offensive to the Hopkins study. It's an no, absolutely no. seminal study. Um, but the, it's like with any study, there are certain, and I think pa Michael Pollan again alludes to that, you know, from the very get-go, the, the their first few studies the way that the participants were recruited, I think, created a selection bias for someone of a more spiritual mm -hmm. bent. And I think that it's really important. It's really important for an Australian context because, yes, whilst it is prosaic, there is quite a social conservative element. And I, I think it must be done. I hope that everything is done in a way that doesn't, doesn't deeply threaten 
those more socially conservative strands, which do probably tend to overlap more with uh, a type of, I suppose, Christianity more yeah. predominantly. So I, I don't see any. I, I, I hope that I hope that the studies get not too much over exuberant press because it could create a sort of a, quite a polarized set in Australia, which I think would be a massive shame. Because our our I'm Australian citizen, I should say, and my accent doesn't give it away. But I, I've been very, I I'm quite positive um, about Australians' ability to Australia's ability to really integrate this because I think it's quite a libertarian place uh, across the board. Uh, maybe that optimism is naive, but is there any particular sticking points that you're looking at from a more cultural conversation point of view with the media where do you see the, the sticking points potentially being i'm i guess i'm happy to say really that my feeling is that the the stigmas um are, are breaking down gradually so there's less um i think there's less risk of sort of societal backlash although i'd, I'd sort of beg, beg to differ with you a little bit i think australian society is still somewhat conservative overall but i guess we just have enough breadth in the society um that there are enough people who can accommodate that without feeling threatened um accommodate the concept of psychedelics for example without feeling threatened um and so hopefully they will will sort of carry the day um but i think uh we, we just need to maintain a um a level positive um mutually respectful conversation with all sectors of society media of course um, the scientific establishment the medical community um, skeptics everybody should be brought in to to have a, a, a respectful conversation i think that's really um that's that's our starting point um I think uh, one thing I can say in terms of the St Vincent's trial is that the clinical team that we have are absolutely fantastic. They're very down to earth, um, um, very pragmatic, very, very committed to, to helping people in the palliative care sense. And I have to say that uh, one, one significant point of difference between our team and the teams of, at both NYU and Hopkins, as far as I know, is that our clinical team are all palliative care specialists. And so they're dealing with people at end of life um, every day of their working week. And so they, uh, A, are faced with the anguish of people who are facing um, facing their end of life. And I have to say, it's not everybody who does face anxiety and depression at the end of their life, but a significant number of people do and it can be really quite debilitating and can hugely impact their, the, the quality of their remaining life um, but these people are um, very very aware of this aware of the implications and frankly they they are looking for solutions to help people who don't have any other uh, treatment options now to, to try and uh, try and relieve the the, the, um, the distress that they're experiencing and so from that point of view, I feel that um, our team are, are going to be level-headed. They don't have that sort of evangelical zeal, but they do have, um, they do feel a need to, to find solutions. Uh, so if anything, I'd say that's the major motivation and, and uh, that, would, that would perhaps underscore any expectancy bias, but I think we're, we're in pretty safe territory overall. Um, and so that would be our first point of, of meeting any um, major skeptics of the trial because we don't have uh, a team that's going to be sort of yelling from the from the um, from the uh, parapet, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, with regards to uh, the 
inclusion and exclusion criteria. It's an interesting overlap because I'm, I'm trying to put my devil's advocate hat on here. There would be people that might say, okay, so you're, you're, you're ostensibly treating uh, depression and anxiety in a, in a cohort that it's end of life. Uh, this isn't real depression and anxiety. Mm. This is existential distress. And you could have had a happy person their entire life and who isn't going to be, uh, you know, massively affected in a mood contact, you know, mood way by, um, you know, an imminent death. Uh, so how, how are you, de- how, would, how would you answer that? And what, what ways are, are certain people being excluded? And how, how are you delineating those, ter- those terminologies? Because I know it's, it's a sort of squirrely area. Well, I can respond by saying that, in fact, the the anxiety and depression um, are actually absolutely real. Uh, They're measurable according to standard psychometric uh, measures, uh, and they're very robust and reproducible measures of um, of anxiety and depression that would be um, uh, that would be uh, given to people who are suffering clinical depression. or anxiety. I can also say that anxiety and depression don't always sort of co-occur in a single person, so it might be manifest one way or the other, or both. Um, but nonetheless, I, uh, the uh, the major inclusion criteria are actually um, clinically significant, uh, measurable depression and/or anxiety, according to the according to those uh, psychological measures. Uh, so. Um, Yes, there may be some. That there are probably some um, quite significant differences in the etiology, um, the origin, and the pro- progression of that anxiety and/or and depression. But nonetheless, they still have measurable and very similar clinical outcomes. Um, having said that, uh, um, well, we can we can still measure improvements in anxiety and depression. But of course, there's the extra dimension of um, of uh, fear of fear of death, so there's a there is a, a further measure that we would be that we will be administering to people called death anxiety, um, and uh, that obviously would not be generally would not be administered to somebody who's suffering a major depressive disorder and um, preparing to undergo a similar course of psychotherapy with psilocybin. Um, so there are some certainly some particularities to the to the um, to the death anxiety or the existential distress associated with end of life uh, study. But um, it has to be said that actually existential distress is not a clinically measurable um, condition. Uh, so uh, we have to reduce it back to anxiety and depression, which are very, very measurable. Hmm. I, um, I suppose I'm being a bit dry in asking that question because I think um, it would have to be someone who was very, very hard-hearted hmm. to not see that you know, yeah. fear of death is, is something that... You know, I, I'm very much wanting to, to promote a sort of construct validity so that this can these these things can replicate and really scale up in a societal way. Sure. But I think in and amongst that, I, need, I myself need to be careful not to lose the fact that, you know, if somebody's afraid of dying yeah. and then something that you could take can help them to die better, yeah. I don't want to almost not see the wood for the trees. But I'm sorry. from... I, 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 I totally I believe that at this early phase, the emotionality that I see in a lot of the journalistic reporting needs to be absolutely subordinate to the to the data because that's what actually helps the most amount of people mm. if it's robust yep. and it makes it through. Could you maybe unpack the process for how psilocybin, like any other substance, goes from theoretical treatment to uh, 
prescription or, or, or descheduling. Yeah, sure. So I guess it has to be said first up that psilocybin is uh, in the in the highest or most restrictive schedule uh, of uh, in the drug schedule. So this is Schedule Nine in Australia or Schedule One in the US. Um, and I guess as an aside, it has to be said that the schedule Schedule One in the US, Schedule Nine in Australia, uh, um, is set aside for drugs that, by definition, um, have no medical application have high abuse potential and uh, are effectively intrinsically dangerous or high risk Um, and I guess all we can really say in response to that is that at least two of those are manifestly incorrect in in relation to um, the classical psychedelics such as psilocybin, uh, LSD, mescaline and so on because um, it's increasingly being demonstrated as it had been uh, demonstrated in the 50s and 60s that uh, these uh, drugs may indeed have significant medical um, application and, and uh, offer benefits and secondly they they really don't have high abuse potential as such because they're non-reinforcing. They have very low addiction potential. Uh, and this has been borne out in, in countless animal studies as well as in observations of human uh, human use. So the use of psychedelics tends to be self-limiting rather than self-reinforcing, it has to be said. Um, but that said, the, uh, the idea really is to um, ultimately to have these drugs... Um, rescheduled from Schedule 9 to uh, another level of scheduling which accommodates um, prescription medicines. And so that effectively would be Schedule 7 in Australia, possibly Schedule 8, which is uh, a more restrictive category which nonetheless uh, enables a a suitably approved uh, physician to, to prescribe uh, and to administer sort of under supervision to, to patients. Uh, and so the normal process for that uh, is that um, any, any drug, any pharmaceutical product um, will come into, come into trials either with no scheduling whatsoever or with a prior scheduling level. Most of them actually come in with no schedule because they're actually new, what you'd call new chemical entities. So they haven't actually explicitly been put onto, onto the schedules. Um, and so the, the trick is to uh, normally uh, new, new drugs are, um, uh, are used in uh, preclinical trials, which means that they would be uh, tested for safety and efficacy in animal models. Um, we're certainly well beyond that because the psychedelics have, have long histories of human use in most cases. Uh, and in fact, the, the phase one of the human uh, clinical trials uh, process, uh, which is intended to demonstrate um, safety in healthy volunteers, has, has also long since passed. So those trials are more or less behind us um, as, a, as a global community now. And so we're really moving on to the levels of clinical trials, which are known as the safety and efficacy trials. Uh, uh, and those are phase two and then ultimately phase three. So phase two is normally on a single site, in, in our case, St Vincent's, uh, and it would normally uh, start with a, a, a manageable but hopefully sizable enough uh, number of participants to achieve some reasonable degree of statistical um, validity. Uh, and then... Um, 
if that validity is uh, determined, then normally this, the, the next step would be to, um, to increase the scale of the trials and to um, expand it to multi-site uh, so that we might look at a number of different sort of cohorts of, uh, of participants so that we can cover uh, gender or sex, I guess, and, um, uh, and race, ethnicity uh, and uh, geographical location and so on and so forth. And so... Um, at this stage, as I said, psilocybin is scheduled, um, so it would be a, a matter of, uh, of um, accumulating the results of our trials probably um, in conjunction with the results of other trials completed around the world, putting together a, a dossier or a portfolio of these results and then making a representation to the Australian Therapeutic Goods Administration to, uh, to have this, um, this drug approved as a new medicine. It's a fairly costly process, it has to be said, both from the point of view of uh, funding the clinical trials, but also to um, to engage the TGA to uh, to um, approve the new uh, medicine, and then accompanying that would need to be the rescheduling, which I referred to earlier. So those are actually two um, separate processes, uh, but they they are administered by the one uh, body. What would you, if you had a magic wand, uh, I'm going to. I'm going to temper that. A realistic magic wand, <laughs> not a very good magic wand. What? And you could wave it. What? What? What do you envisage for Australia and its relationship to these psychedelic substances in, say, the next five to ten years? I think. Uh, I think the clinical trials are actually going to um, perform a couple of. Uh, functions. First, we we do want to contribute to the global uh, psychedelic medical research um, effort, and so we would like to contribute Australian results to that, and and sort of add, I guess, to the validity of the of the worldwide um, movement. Uh, but then, on the other hand, we we have a. We have a medical community in Australia that's very highly trained, highly credentialed, but also somewhat um, conservative. Uh, and so I think it's really very important for us to um, to demonstrate the applicability of psychedelic psychotherapy in the Australian context. And so that's really, I think, a, a really important um, uh, role that our research is, is going to play. Um, but I'd say within five years we should see, A, we should have, a, have the results of our own trial. We'll definitely uh, be seeing results of other trials that are increasingly taking place uh, in, around the world. Uh, and so we definitely should be taking very concrete steps within five years to uh, making those representations to the to the TGA. Now, if the, um, if the breakthrough therapy designations which have been accorded by the, um, by the FDA and the European Medicines Agency to both um, MDMA and psilocybin for, for the treatment of various mental health conditions um, are, uh, are just proved to be justified, then we might actually find that we are on something of a faster track in Australia, uh, which of course would be um, an ambition of Mind Medicine Australia uh, to, to bring about the rescheduling and the approval of these medicines as, as quickly as possible so that people can be, can be treated and potentially benefit from them. Uh, but I'm, uh, I'm a little less, I'm a little less bullish, and I'm, I'm a little more cognizant of the need to, um, uh, to make sure that our medical and, uh, well, medical 
uh, fraternity as well as the community at large are very much on side and very supportive uh, and ultimately convinced by the merits uh, if those merits can be uh, demonstrated adequately. Um, you've mentioned there with uh, Mind Madison Australia and how you, it seems like if my reading of, of your website and, and there's various uh, outputs from, from Mind Madison Australia, which I'll link to, if I'm right in this, it seems like it's been created to to do exactly that, to have, to be a nexus for research, education, inevitable training, assuming everything goes well with, with phase three trials uh, for, for therapists, to setting up different partnerships, especially funding ones. That, that seems to me to be a, quite a slow burn, really. So I don't know what your thoughts are in terms of is the remit of Mind Medicine Australia to sort of usher this in, in the most comprehensive way? Or how would you define what Mind Medicine Australia's mission is? Well, Mind Medicine Australia certainly has um, has ambitions to, to bring about these uh, developments um, as quickly and as expediently as possible, and I think that's quite reasonable. Um, I think that in the first instance, uh, it, it needs to be a communication organisation as effectively PRISM has been a communication advocacy organisation over the last seven to eight years. Um, but then in anticipation of uh, approvals, then it will need to mobilise very quickly um, towards uh, the provision of training for therapists. Uh, and so um, just harking back to my earlier, um, uh, earlier part of our conversation, Preparation is one very important part of the psychedelic psychotherapeutic process, but um, but integration is an equally important part, and that's where a participant will um, will meet again with the therapists after the psychedelic experience, and then um, put their experience into perspective that can be can be utilised for the, for the therapeutic benefit. And so, um, both preparatory and and integrative psychotherapy are really going to be very important um, parts of the uh, of the process. Of, that um, are, are still somewhat different from the from the more directive psychotherapeutic interventions which are currently um, uh, practiced widely in Australia and, and in other parts of the world. Uh, and so that rather specialised training will be very important and I think uh, there's already quite a lot of demand in the psychotherapeutic uh, community for that. Um, and and so I think we uh, we can expect to, to get a very good uptake from, from that part of the, uh, the, the um, health and allied um, area. But um, nonetheless, as a prescription medicine, any of these drugs would need to have the um, involvement of medical practitioners as well. And I think we'll, we will probably have to um, organise a, a separate set of, uh, of training modules for, um, for people who are already um, medical practitioners. And then finally, there'll be there will be that communication at the regulatory level. So that will be at the at the government, the um, and the bureau, bureaucracy level uh, for the rescheduling and approvals of these. And how have you found the um, those various institutional bodies? Um, how have you found liaison with with them? Has that been a straightforward process? I'm happy to say they've been overwhelmingly positive. Uh, we have uh, um, we've been in in touch with uh, state and federal level uh, agencies, uh, and of course we we originally put the uh, 
the proposal and the protocol to the St Vincent's Human Research Ethics Committee. And all of those bodies have been very supportive. They've been um, encouraging. They have uh, always provided the, the best levels of assistance to, um, to enable us to, to achieve what we needed to achieve uh, to get the approvals with the minimum of, of um, confusion and, and delay. Uh, and so that's really been encouraging and I would I guess I um, it's it's really a, a testament to the amazing skills of the lead uh, clinician dr. Margaret Ross at St Vincent's because she has uh, she's undertaken a lot of those communications and uh, she's been remarkably uh, successful in her uh, in in her endeavors um, all the way through this last uh, sort of 14 month period mm. I think I'd love to speak to dr. Ross because she mm. seems like a real linchpin for this and has the vision to to sort of coordinate between therapeutic teams uh, teams you know research teams and then the, the various um, policy administrators so I think those those types of people are you know they're, they're worth their weight in gold because they really make things Absolutely. make things happen yeah. and she has she has clinical trial background she's got relevant experience she's also experienced as a trauma um, a psychotherapist so she, she really has a, a broad a broad experience and, and very very relevant skills which mm. are fantastic to have I think I'd um, hopefully like to speak to, to her I'll, I'll obviously extend an invite to her to to talk more about the almost the therapeutic side of things going forward and the prescriptive side of things because those are those are conversations which I think are are um, sort of embryonic now because knowing the way that it works in a mental health capacity there's a lot of um, hierarchy within the you know the therapy departments and who can prescribe and who should be in charge of this and who should be in charge of that and who's qualified to deal with um, you know the various things which these substances might actually uh, elicit and how you can effectively use uh, the insights that people gain even if they are difficult yeah, yeah. to make big big changes I think that's really something that um, uh, yeah is important there's to, to circle back on um, uh, you mentioned that you know being this positive response from the various uh, policy administrators that's something which did that take you by surprise or um, were you expecting that type of response? Uh, I think it was. It's turned out to be important to take one step at a time. Um, that's probably not always going to be the case, but we've we've had the. Uh, I guess in a way we've had the luxury of time to be able to to do that, uh, and so in some cases it's just been a matter of finding the right person in each organisation to <clears throat> to approach. Um, it it has surprised me. I've always been uh, a little. Um, uh, little circumspect, I guess, about our prospects. Um, but with each forward step, I've just become more and more sort of gratified and, and comfortable with the whole process. So, and I think this really, this St Vincent's trial is just going to be um, turn out to be so so pivotal because uh, effectively it has uh, set a really um, fantastic positive precedent. Um, so it's really broken the ice for uh, for, for further. Uh, developments along those lines. Away from psilocybin and the treatment of end of life depression and anxiety, what substances and potential uh, conditions, pathologies, what sort of combination excites you the most from a research perspective? Probably from my point of view, and, and no particular sort of direct personal experience, but from my point of view, one of the most 
uh, exciting prospects is the treatment of substance use disorders uh, using a range of compounds. And psilocybin, it has to be said, has already demonstrated significant efficacy in that regard. Um, but the, the, the extract from a West African shrub called iboga, ibogaine, um, is one that uh, pharmacologically is very complex and, uh, and in some ways quite mysterious. Uh, and there's been a significant amount of research uh, in the past, but it's, it's still got a long way to go, I feel. Uh, some people, are, many people are concerned about its um, physiological potential um, uh, impacts in terms of uh, risks for some people who have, for example, pre-existing heart conditions and so on. Uh, but I think that that could well be a really sort of rich um, vein to, to mine in time. Excuse the pun. Um, and I also think that there's a whole range of um, relatively short-acting compounds which are similar to either psilocybin on the one hand or to mescaline, which is another, of course, naturally occurring classical psychedelic. Uh, and I think there's there's the potential for, for example, combination therapies, all, always in, um, in the context of psychotherapy, but some of these may be used in combination to really fine-tune the, um, the, uh, the therapeutic uh, applicability of these. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's sort of my, I guess, my little crystal ball. Uh, in many cases, uh, the, mm. uh, the, some of the classical psychedelics, such as mescaline and LSD, are very long-acting, and so they can be rather exhausting for both therapist and participant. Um, and so that's one of the reasons that psilocybin mm. is so attractive. It has to be said that ebogaine is, is an extremely long-acting compound. Um, and so in some ways that may be less suited after all, but it's, it's certainly its potential to achieve amazing outcomes is, is already demonstrated. And I think there's a lot of work still to be done in that regard. I almost envisage, um, I don't know what you think of this, but I almost envisage that there will be a delineation once the research is more sort of backfilled you know everything's not everything but it's been sufficiently tested so we have a good handle on what does what and you know which which treatments are are best aligned which type of patients are best aligned for for you know just the way your, your gp would say this antibiotic will work better for you etc i i envisage a delineation between uh, things that are available in a sort of day patient setting you know your and then ones that are very much more aligned with uh, residential uh, treatment. So I, there is a sort of antecedent infrastructure of, of rehabs. I used to work in one, uh, and I would say that those sort of longer acting ones in terms of, oh, no, it takes, you know, 24 to 48 hours and you need lots of physiological monitoring. There's a whole system, a whole infrastructure that is already set up, I think, to cope with that, where people stay on site for months at a time. They have, you know, doctors on site. So I see that in a, in a way, the I'm concerned that the media will, get the wrong handle on things and say oh no look at all this sort of Dionysian element that's released onto the high street and you think it won't be released onto the high street that the most appropriate place for it is in a residential setting anyway so I think there's two conversations that need to be had does this substance lend itself more to a psychologist and everybody goes home at 5pm yeah. or are we looking at a retreat context for this you know a residential context 
Very good point. And uh, this is this is already underway in terms of ayahuasca uh, retreats and so on, as you say. And, and, and as you correctly point out, there have been clinics set up in other parts of the world. In fact, including New Zealand, yeah. as it happens, not so mm-hmm. terribly far away for, for, uh, for Evergain, for, uh, for, for opioid dependence. So, um, yeah, look, I, th- I think, uh, as you say, as, as we... Uh, as our level of sophistication increases, then I think we will be in a position to um, to make those sorts of uh, triage type um, sort of directions. Um, and yeah, I think we're just really just scratching the surface, aren't we? I mean, there's a there's a range of other um, mood and affective disorders, including uh, obsessive compulsive disorder and some of the eating disorders. And, there's a couple. There's a couple of others which are related to anxiety, which, um, which I think um, could be treated to achieve remarkable increases in quality of life for, for people who really quite needlessly are, are suffering at the moment. So, I think a lot of that um, research ha- has been started, but it has a long way to go. Uh, so, we'll see what comes of that. Um. I am very conscious of your, your, your time, Martin. I just wanted to um, come back. We, we sort of set out our remit to talk about study and then also to 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 sort of give some guidelines to the, the media more generally, but especially the Australian media that's becoming interested. We've mentioned a pet peeve about um, uh, magic mushrooms. I think Michael Pollan gets told off by Paul Stamet for using such type of is there Is there anything else, just like a hit list of stuff, that you think journalists, if you see now in the Australian media, think, I think we're beyond that, guys. Are there any particular areas that you would like to see a bit of a tightening of the, of the standards? Uh, I think it is appropriate for the media to be um, questioning and, and sceptical, though hopefully not cynical about all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... I, I think there there is that sort of there's a risk of sort of breathlessness, <laughs> sort of that um, proselytizing, sort of evangelical. Uh, so I, th- I think some balance is very important as long as it doesn't become sort of partisan or uh, or, or unreasonable or, or or personal or vindictive. So I really hope that there's always going to be respect in 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 that context. Um, my feeling is that uh, there's a there's a tendency with all the excitement. Um, for a subject to be slightly overexposed, um, and it's great to keep things in people's minds. But uh, if they if they start to if there's if there's too much hype about something, and then that hype isn't really delivered upon until somewhat later in the piece. So, for example, we're talking about a two to three year sort of time frame for our clinical trial um, before any results really can be can be communicated. Uh, and so, I'm hoping that the that the media and the public in general will be will be patient. You know that they'll they'll bear with us while we go through the through the proper process. Um, and so, having undue and unreasonable expectations, I think, is something that we really all need to be um, uh, concerned about and uh, and try and avoid if we can. So, uh, as time goes on, I'm I'm really hoping that we might have other clinical trials to talk about so that the um, the singular focus on the St Vincent's trial that's, that's really been quite appropriate up until now um, can be can be spread across a, a number of other a number of other research groups a number of other conditions potentially a number of other psychedelic agents and so 
um, overall we can keep um, keep it in the general um, uh, public consciousness, but without without overdoing it or exhausting any particular single uh, object of, of that attention. Yeah. So a proliferation of the the studies and the general research community and, and the therapeutic community in Australia that are investigating these so that it sort of diffuses the attention because um, if media keep writing about the same thing, especially in today's clickbait culture, the headlines will just invariably get more you know, sensational if they have to keep going back. They'll, lo- they'll lose impact. Well, potentially, yeah. I think they'll ultimately potentially lose impact. And I'm, I'm, uh, Yeah, it, it would be a bit of a shame if we, if we lost the support just through overexposure. Absolutely. But it's a fine, it's a fine balance to achieve. Well, um, I wish you and your team all the best and thanks for thanks for putting in all of the work because I know that there has been a period when nobody wanted to know um back to back to when ethics committees just flat outright refused a fairly well put together meticulously put together proposal so um I wish you and your team and Mind Medicine all the best and here's for a slow burn thanks so much for your time <laughs> thank you very much Neil it's been great I'm, uh, I'm happy to appropriate a, an expression from our former Prime Minister there's never been a more exciting time to be in Australia so I hope you enjoyed that uh, it makes me very proud to be an Australian and I'm also put at ease that reasonable down-to-earth people seem to be heading things up down under If you would like to help us out on the podcast, please feel free to leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever else you listen. It really helps us out. And also, please feel free to spread this podcast with your friends on social media channels. And until next time, take care.